0: There's a struggle going on right now in the USA around race. We've had our first African-American president, so some think we're well on our way to being a post-racial society. And yet, every couple weeks, it seems, we see a viral video of some black person being harassed or even killed with little or no provocation or justification, and the white persecutor being excused with no more than a slap on the wrist. How did we get to this place? Our history has a lot to say about the path, the justifications, and the pathology which are part of our national karma, and Catherine Gerbner has done some enlightening research on the origins, particularly on the roots of slavery and religion in North America. We all know little bits of the story, but understanding the more complete and real picture may be exactly what we need to see in order to deal with the racism embedded in our society. Catherine Gerbner is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Minnesota. We had planned for my assistant, Catherine Thomas, also a Catherine spelled with two A's, to participate in today's interview. And although that was not possible, she is still providing production assistance for this program. Catherine Gerbner joins us now by phone for today's show. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Hello. And you're saying hello from over in the Twin Cities. Are you actually in Minneapolis or St. Paul or somewhere else?
1: You know, actually, I am on vacation in Pennsylvania. It's actually a little Quaker retreat up here in the Pocono Mountains. So I'm a little bit farther away from the Twin Cities. I'll be back there next week.
0: Where is this? I'm curious.
1: It's called Pocono Lake Preserve. It's by a lake that is a formerly like delivered ice to Philadelphia, and then Quakers started coming up here about a hundred years ago, trying to get out of the city, get back to nature. They lived in tents. They now have like real houses. But my family's been coming up here for a few generations, and my husband's family also. His family is an old Quaker family, so I've come up here every summer of my life.
0: So, are you Quaker identified? I wasn't positive about that.
1: I don't consider myself completely a Quaker. I went to Quaker school growing up in Philadelphia, and my husband is a Quaker. His family, as I mentioned before, they trace their roots back to Quaker abolitionists and others. So we were married in a Quaker ceremony. So Quakerism is definitely a part of my identity. We don't go to meeting regularly now, but I certainly love and respect the Quaker tradition.
0: Well, I didn't know that before I actually arranged to interview you, although I saw you were from Philadelphia, which increased the percentage probability slightly. (laughs) But the reason we have you here today is because you're an assistant professor of history at the University of Minnesota, and you've just released a book, Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Christian slavery is something that many people think, you know, that's so far in the past, doesn't matter at all. But its shadow obviously reaches down to our times and has major implications. We're going to be spending a lot of time back in late 1600s, early 1700s for this interview. Did this period attract you for any particular reason, this topic, slavery, you know, the whole racial implications of it? Did it attract you for any particular reason?
1: So, The first research I started doing was actually about Quaker anti-slavery. The reason I went back to the 17th century is because I decided what better way to study the history of anti-slavery and abolition than looking at the very first anti-slavery protest that was written in the American colonies. And that was a protest written in 1688 by a group of German and Dutch Quakers in, well, it was Germantown, it's now part of Philadelphia. It was written a few blocks from where I grew up going to school. And so it had this personal connection growing up in Philadelphia. You know, I saw the segregation of neighborhoods in the city and I was sort of raised with this awareness of how important race was. I was interested in the history of race and racism, but also in anti-slavery and the role that Quakers played there. So that's where I started my research. But as I researched this anti-slavery protest written by these Germantown Quakers, one of the first things that I realized is that the English Quakers in Philadelphia rejected the protest. And that was shocking to me because having grown up in this Quaker community, you hear all about Quaker abolitionism, you know, the Quakers and the Underground Railroad and just the social justice initiatives in general. So to realize that this anti-slavery protest was written by Quakers but then rejected by Quakers was perplexing. And so I began that research 13 years ago and it led into this broader research about trying to understand how people like Quakers and other Protestants integrated slavery into their theological worldviews, into their social worlds. Quakers, I found out, you know, in the 17th century, Many, many Quakers actually owned slaves, especially in the colonies like Barbados. There was a huge Quaker population there in the 17th century, but also in places like Philadelphia. And that was one of the reasons that this initial anti-slavery protest was rejected.
0: I, too, went back and realized there was that history. I mean, nobody likes to promote the fact as, yay, I'm descended from slave owners And the whole movement that really tilted Quakers strongly against slavery happened in the mid-1700s. John Woolman is notable for that. The weird thing is, given the strong egalitarian nature of early Quakers, I mean, the whole thee and thou thing is a dramatic equalizer, so you don't respond your honor to someone, you address them in the informal thee or thou that is a radical thing, and women were given a considerably more equal role. In so many ways, Quakers were on the cutting edge. Why didn't George Fox get it right when he went to Barbados?
1: Yeah, I think this is such an important question, and I try in my book and in my research to sort of balance the radicalism of someone like George Fox, things that he said about pronouns, like calling people "and thou, um, refusing to doff his hat, these kinds of equalizers were extremely radical. It is surprising when we look back, well, couldn't he have seen that enslaving a person and keeping them, forcing them to work for you was not a practice of equality? I think that, in part, he did see that, but we also see the limits of his radicalism in his stance on slavery. So, in the 1670s, this is when he actually goes to the island of Barbados, where there is this large Quaker population. And it's the first time that he's seen a true slave society. I think we have to, (laughs) as hard as it is, put ourselves in his shoes. He arrives there, he actually gets sick for a long time, and a month later... He gets better, and he gives this speech about how he thinks Quakers should interact with slaves and integrate slavery into their theological worldview. And what he says, we have to recognize it as radical at the time, even though it is also greatly falls short from what we would consider to be a practice of equality. Basically, what he says to the slave-owning Quakers, that they should include enslaved people in their worship practices, include them in their meetings and treat them as spiritual equals. This actually, in 17th century Barbados, was an extremely radical statement because most slave owners at the time justified slavery by saying that they were only enslaving heathens. So the idea of including slaves in a Christian community undermines the justification for slavery. So it was radical in that way and Barbadian slave owners actually prosecuted Quakers for allowing enslaved people to meet with them and worship with them. So that was radical, but at the same time he didn't say, free your slaves, manumit your slaves, slavery is completely incompatible with Christianity. He actually laid out an argument for how the two could be compatible And I think that is what is really shocking for us looking back, is that someone who seemed to care so little about what people in authority would say, somehow he did not challenge the institution of slavery in the same way that he challenged other institutions at the time.
0: You know, one of my takes on how these things get mishmashed around is that once you arrive to being in control of a society, things look very different. Christians for the first 300 years would generally have been called pacifists, right? They really, you love your enemies, turn the other cheek, this is all serious. But when Constantine makes it the official religion of Rome, all of the sudden, well, we have to say, what do we do protect our communities? All of a sudden, well, maybe we can use a little force here and there and And I have a feeling that some of those reasons were playing in the decision that George Fox was making. How do you, in Barbados, run a society? I don't know if the Quakers were actually prominent or in control of much. I mean, they still went to prison or jail or were disenfranchised at various points because of even their half-steps.
1: Yes, well, actually, I think you're absolutely correct that this has everything to do with the timing of Fox's trip to Barbados, which, as I said, is in the 1670s. Quakerism by that time is a couple decades old, and the purpose of Fox's visit It was an institution-building exercise where he was visiting all of these different colonies, trying to make sure that people had a hierarchy of meetings, that they were communicating to the right people. And so there was this aspect of his trip where he's trying to consolidate the structure of Quakerism. And I think that it did blunt his radicalism in many ways. I think that was absolutely part of it. When he arrived in Barbados, Many of the Quakers that he met, some of them were rather wealthy. The vast majority of them owned slaves. They were not in control of the government. They were being persecuted for various things like not supporting the militia. They still had a level in society That was high enough, and so many of them owned slaves, he kind of had to choose, was he going to fight against the concept of slavery, or was he going to accept the Quaker population as it was, and try to reform the way that they were treating enslaved people. And I think he chose the latter path.
0: One of your previous publications was Quakers and Slavery, and you included a significant section in this book, Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World, and folks, that's by Catherine Gerbner. You included some of that in there, but you also were talking significantly about Anglicans and Moravians, and we'll get to that very shortly. So we're talking about the origins of ideas about slavery Let's go back before, actually, the New World is settled. Slavery has existed around the world forever and a day, but it went through various permutations. You talk in the book, Catherine, about how at a certain point it's not okay for Christians to own Christians, but they can own the name that gets used, heathen, right? They can do that. We're talking about times back even in Rome where it was not okay for a Jew to own a Christian. What got us to the 17th century and the attitudes about slavery?
1: In the first chapter of the book, I really tried to lay out the long history of the relationship between Christianity and slavery. What I found is that in the early Christian period, there are many Christian slaves, right? So those two are very closely affiliated. But as you were mentioning before, once Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire, Christians are owning slaves, and many Christians own other Christians. And there doesn't seem to be any real problem with this. I mean, there were even monasteries that had Christian slaves working in them. And so you could be a Christian, you could own a slave, and you could own a Christian slave. But over time, this does change. What ends up happening is in the early medieval period in southern Europe, there is the fight with Muslim Spain and the Reconquista, And one of the things that happens over those centuries is that eventually it becomes taboo to own another Christian. So Christians continue to practice slavery, to enslave other people, but eventually you are no longer supposed to enslave a Christian. And instead you can enslave a Muslim, a pagan, a heathen, right? These words that mean just varieties of non-Christian. And in Northwestern Europe... Slavery continues to be practiced, but not as much as it is in a place like what's now Spain. But slavery is sort of legal, but it kind of dissipates because there isn't as much demand for it. After the Protestant Reformation, many of these regions become Protestants. And there there is a new idea that if you are a Protestant, you could still own a slave, but Protestants were especially free. And English people, Dutch people in this period started to believe that Anyone who was a Protestant like them should be a free person. And so by the time you get to the 17th century and the expansion of Protestant nations like the English, the Dutch in the New World, where they copied the practice of slaveholding from the Spanish and Portuguese, they... Continue to practice slavery, but they now believe that if an enslaved person becomes Protestant, then that person might need to be set free because they think that Protestantism and freedom are aligned. And so in this long history, uh, looking at the relationship between Christianity and slavery, we see that it is a very malleable connection that has changed greatly over time. And the way that the English integrated slavery in their ideas about religion is quite different, actually, from the way people in the Catholic American colonies did. So for a Spanish or Portuguese person, if you enslaved someone, you were supposed to baptize them immediately, and they were supposed to become Catholics. What happens in a place like Barbados is that because... Protestant slave owners believe that Protestantism is so closely connected with freedom, they refuse to allow enslaved people to become Protestant Christians, and that is a formative aspect of these early English slave societies.
0: And it might be very tempting for our listeners to judge this with a modern lens as opposed to what was going on three, 400 years ago. But in fact, the whole view about slavery, which was an economic institution, and people don't really think about are we condemning people to slavery because we're importing something from some other country where, in essence, slavery exists— we do that, but we don't think about it very much, and when we think back around 1600s and slavery becoming more and more normal, accepted, even amongst Quakers, which is you know mind-blowing to some of us, it's really hard to put ourselves in their shoes rather than just to say, no, you're just doing evil, you're just a bad person. I'm very interested in the difference in attitudes about slavery between Catholics and Protestants. And again, the book is called Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. I grew up Catholic, became Quaker as an adult, and so I actually have some of that Catholic worldview within me. Why was it so different? I mean, were the attitudes about slavery in New Orleans, for instance, a very heavily Catholic area originally, is that radically different than the attitudes on slavery outside? I mean, you said they baptized them. They're supposed to become Catholic right away, and there were missions to the Native Americans. How did the attitudes about slavery differ between Catholics and Protestants?
1: in some ways they were not all that different both catholic and protestant slave societies were brutal cruel institutions that said there were these important differences in how slavery was legalized and baptism is so important because it really was the way that a person became recognized within these early modern societies as a subject as a a voter as someone who was you know had political presence and so In Catholic colonies, enslaved people were supposed to be baptized, and as a result, they had access to certain rights that enslaved people in Protestant societies did not have. So I'll give you a couple examples. And again, I should emphasize that it's not that these rights were always very accessible, but there are many cases in which an enslaved person who was, for example married to another enslaved person if one of those spouses was sold far away from the other a enslaved person could petition a priest a priest could intervene on their behalf and they could actually press charges against the slave owner because their marriage was recognized as a catholic union and you were not supposed to separate a married couple so there are many cases of petitions that enslaved people brought forward in order to be reunited with their spouses The road to manumission was also a little more clear. In a lot of Protestant slave societies, there was actually laws created to prevent manumission, making it very, very difficult for a slave owner who wanted to even manumit an enslaved person from being able to do that. In most of the Catholic slave societies, the road was more obvious. And so because of the fact that enslaved people were incorporated into the Catholic community, they had a variety of different options before them in order to advocate for themselves and their families that enslaved people in Protestant slave societies didn't have because they were prevented from being baptized and from joining Protestant churches. And there are a lot of reasons for why Catholics and Protestants diverged in these ways. Some are theological, but then some are actually institutional. Now, if you think about it, there's a Pope, and the Pope said... You should baptize a person who is enslaved. So the Pope sort of said slavery was fine as long as the Catholic community was expanding. There's no Pope for Protestants. And there were no centralized authorities, really, for many of the Protestant denominations. So the decisions about the relationship between Protestantism and slavery get left in the hands of the people in power in the colonies who are slave owners. And they make laws that benefit themselves and exclude enslaved people from any rights that were associated with Protestantism. So it is a complex story, but I think a really important one that has consequences for centuries.
0: Including today, and I'm curious in part about that because countries that were primarily Catholic, I'm thinking of Mexico and on South, did they limit, uh, get rid of, uh, modify slavery before the North did, before the United States did?
1: You know, I think actually one of the ironic effects of the Catholic slavery is that it actually extends slavery. So slavery in um, Latin America ends later than in much of the Protestant colonies. And I think one of the reasons for that is because in the end, it was a more sustainable system with more releases for enslaved people, opportunities for a manumission. And so ironically, I think it actually extends the institution quite a bit in some ways. But I do think that the type of slavery that Protestant slave owners created, by refusing to allow enslaved people to become Protestants, they had pushback from people in England, for example, almost immediately. And so this becomes a debate, and eventually it becomes a way to attack the practice of slavery in the English colonies. It allows for, eventually, the abolitionist movement to point to how unchristian the slave system is in the American South and the Caribbean.
0: And that's a hard statement to make, that it's unchristian when it's been accepted by Christians for many centuries.
1: Right. And also pro-slavery Christians at the time were also making the argument that slavery was a Christian institution. So it was a big battle of was slavery Christian or not.
0: One of the factors, you mentioned to it that slavery was especially important on plantations, and the rise of sugar was the big impetus to it, particularly in Barbados and some other places where sugar cultivation became the norm. You've got these vast plantations— And originally, I understand that the number of Europeans, whites, versus Africans, blacks, was somewhat manageable, but then as these plantations became larger and larger, the number of blacks vastly outnumbered the whites, and so all of a sudden, you know, and that's your labor force, how do you keep your labor force under control? So the laws had to grow and modify then. And this idea that if you became Christian, Maybe you should be freed from slavery because Christians don't have Christian slaves, right? So, talk about how evil sugar is in your life versus how <laughs> early evil it was back in Barbados.
1: Yeah. So, the sugar plantation grew up in Barbados. The practice was an import from Portuguese Brazil, and from there, it had been practiced in the Atlantic Islands and in North Africa, but. Sugar is an extremely labor-intensive crop and it's labor that has to, especially during the harvesting of sugar, it needs attention almost around the clock. One historian has described sugar plantations as agro-industrial because you have to actually process sugar on the plantation itself. So it requires a huge amount of labor in order to make these sugar plantations profitable. And initially in a place like Barbados, the workforce is mostly European indentured servants. But over the course of the 17th century, more and more Africans are imported to work on the slave plantations. And this meant that by the 1660s in Barbados, the enslaved African population was larger than the European population. And this led to a huge amount of paranoia on the part of slave owners, and other Europeans who were worried that this enslaved African workforce would refuse to work and rebel against them. And one of the side effects of this extreme fear and paranoia, you can see in the development of the slave codes. The first slave code is in 1660, and it treats enslaved people as, frankly, subhuman. There's no reference to any rights that they have. It's all about punishments for various things. And so Protestantism plays into this because slave owners were so afraid of what would happen if anything disturbed this fragile balance that they had created. They were worried that enslaved people would rebel. And so one of the first letters that I found about the issue of slave conversion is from a group of Barbados merchants who... In response to this question, well, why aren't you allowing enslaved people to be baptized in Protestant churches? They say that if they did so, slaves would, quote, rebel and cut their throats. And so I think you can see in there this mix of paranoia, fear, and desire to prevent any change in the society to allow enslaved people access to any of the rights that they associated with Protestantism and with baptism.
0: And people, again, you're going to be tempted to make simplistic assessments of the attitudes of people back then. Why didn't they know, right? How could they? One of the stories that I found particularly interesting is how a couple different organizations, SPG's Mm -hmm. initials, they received a gift of plantation and slaves and how their attitudes had to modify because of their self-interest. But first, I want to remind everybody that you're listening to Spirit in Action. My guest today is Catherine Gerbner, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Minnesota. She teaches courses on Atlantic history, history of religions, magic, and medicine, and the Early Modern Archive. And her book that just came out is Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. So we're talking about racism at its roots in this nation. We'll get to more of that, but first I want to remind you that you'll find all of our programs from the last 13 years on our website, northernspiritradio.org. You'll find links to our guests, so when you want to track down Katherine Gerbner, there is a website, KatherineGerbner.com, and Katherine has two A's in it. If you have doubt, come by on NordenSpiritRadio.org, KatherineGerbner.com. You'll find more about her work. She is in the Twin Cities of Minnesota now, transplanted from Philadelphia originally, Also on our site, by the way, you'll find places to post comments. Please do let us know what you're thinking of our programs. Make suggestions. Help us out in many other ways. There's a donate button. That donate button is how this full-time work is supported. It's not by corporations, not by government. It's because you, the listener, choose to support us. Even more important, though, support your local community radio station. Local media is just so essential because now in the United States, over 90% of our media are owned in just six different big hands, corporations. And to have a local voice is not obvious. So please start by helping your local community radio station. Again, we're with Katherine Gerbner here today. She's over in the Twin Cities. I'm about 75 or 90 miles away in Wisconsin. And Catherine is just released the book Christian Slavery. So I told you, Catherine, before the break there, that we're going to talk a little bit about the SPG, and in particular, Codrington, is that his name, Codrington?
1: That's right, Christopher Codrington.
0: Christopher Codrington left a gift, a bequest, to the organization, and there's a couple of them actually involved. Talk about that gift and what it did to missionaries' attitudes about slavery.
1: Right. Well, I think this connects to what you were saying before about how we look at this history, and I think we're all very quick to say, oh, we would have done something differently. And we look at what people did in the past as, frankly, evil. And I think that there was a lot of evil back then, but we also have to understand how intertwined people were with the economic system of slavery. So one of the chapters of my book looks at a slave owner named Christopher Codrington, who was born on the island of Barbados. And he was the son and grandson of one of the most wealthy sugar plantation owners on the island. So he inherited hundreds of slaves. And at the same time, you know, as he grew up, he was educated back in England. He was a devout Christian. And he began to think more seriously about what it meant to be a slave owner what it meant to own 300 people, and what he should do in order to reconcile this existence that he had inherited with his conscience and with his theological commitment. What he ends up doing, and I think that we would all say he still falls short, right? He doesn't choose to manumit his slaves. Instead, he writes in his will that he wants all of his slaves and his plantations to be given to a missionary organization that had just started up back in England called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, And I think that this was his way of trying to reconcile being a slave owner and being a Christian. If he gave his plantations and his slaves to the church, then they would treat them well. And also in his eyes, more importantly, convert them to Christianity. And so the next chapter of my book looks at what happens once it's the Anglican Church, it's a wing of the Anglican Church, the Church of England. What happens when they are actually given 300 enslaved people and these plantations in Barbados? They start with really high hopes. You know, there's an important sermon in the year published after this bequest is made saying how they would fight so hard to bring these enslaved people into the church and what ends up happening is they send one missionary there, the missionary doesn't do very much, doesn't have very much success, and in fact, over time, what ends up happening is that because the church is now the slave owner as well as the evangelizer, they start threatening enslaved people. If they don't come to worship meetings, then they will be punished. So the evangelization process gets caught up in the slave ownership process, but I think the bigger sort of thing that happened is that back in England, the Bishop of London, the Archbishop of Canterbury, they are actually dealing in economic transactions regarding these enslaved people. So the majority of records that the church has about this bequest is actually about how they're going to make money from it. And the church leaders become increasingly entangled in the economic aspect of slavery to the point that 20 years after the bequest, they've done nothing in terms of actually succeeding to evangelize to enslaved people. And instead, the church leaders have become really integrated into the slave ownership agenda of trying to make money off of the plantations that they own. It's a sad story, but I think it shows what happens when a church becomes economically entangled in slavery, is that they don't do much to actually change the slave system or try to end it. Instead, they end up supporting it and propagating for the expansion and continuation of slavery.
0: And I think that, Catherine, that has some messages today for movements in divestment. Divestment has certainly been pushed. I remember back when I was originally involved in political actions and divestment in war industries during Vietnam War or in South Africa at the time of apartheid. And certainly going back in the day, in this mid-1700s, John Woolman, a Quaker, decides he's not going to wear clothes dyed with indigo from plantations of slaves. So he's actually boycotting or practicing divestment from such industries. And the lessons from the Conington Bequest is watch out what you accept because your investments will tend to pull your attitudes in the world that maybe your economics will drive your attitudes.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And it is certainly a resonant lesson today as well.
0: We've talked a bit about Quakers, Anglicans. The other group that you center the book on is the Moravians. And I'm not sure people even know who Moravians are now or really what pietism is. Could you share a little bit of that? Because it makes such a difference in the whole history of this country.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, most people haven't heard of the Moravians. They're a small Protestant denomination. They actually are founded in Eastern Germany, Eastern Saxony in the 1730s and they are immediately persecuted sort of in germany for their radical beliefs about things like gender and their worship practices are seen as not being orthodox enough within sort of the lutheran church and so they end up becoming a missionary church first and foremost and they are very active in the caribbean the town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was originally a Moravian town, and there they evangelized to Native Americans. The town of Winston-Salem was also a Moravian town, and the Moravians, they seek to evangelize especially to non-Europeans, and that's why they're so important to the story in my book and to understanding this larger issue of Christianity and its relationship to slavery more generally, because... After the Quakers and the Anglicans, they're really the only other Protestant group to really make an effort to evangelize to enslaved people. And so the last few chapters of my book are dedicated to their evangelization projects and also their records, which we haven't talked very much about the records yet that I used for this book, but the Moravians wrote so much about daily life in a slave society, more than any of the Anglicans I looked at are the Quakers. And they were writing daily diaries, also included in the Moravian records are really astonishing letters, either written by or transcribed by enslaved and free Blacks themselves who had converted to the Moravian church. And so looking at the Moravian missionary history, it helps us to understand this larger issue of Christian slavery, but it also gives much more insight into the reasons that enslaved and free Blacks actually wanted to convert to Christianity because the manuscript records are so rich and textured, and so it allows historians to tell a different story about this.
0: And the Moravians were part of this whole wave of evangelical Christianity that happened around that time, right? That for Protestantism, originally, part of it is you should get a hold of a Bible and read it and read it and read it, and and then you become a good Christian. I... That's a vast oversimplification, but that's a heavy thread in that. And when you're dealing with slaves who are not allowed to read because if they become more knowledgeable, they know how to fight you better. They know how to make their arguments. And you point out some of the argumentation about theology that happens between enslaved people from Africa versus their overlords or missionaries who have a different theology that they want to press. So one of the things that is It's kind of a fine point that is developed along the way, is about what freedom is. And we think of freedom, manumission, you're no longer a slave. But freedom, sometimes they said, well, freedom of the soul is more important than freedom of the body, in essence. Could you talk about attitudes about that and as they evolved? Again, between the 1600s, 1700s, things changed dramatically.
1: Right. So I think when we talk about freedom, it's a lofty ideal, but oftentimes if you try to actually say, well, what do you mean? Are you talking about freedom from something, freedom to do something? You know, There are a lot of different permutations for what this really important word freedom means. And if you look at the history of Christian slavery, we see this word freedom being used in ways that are surprising to us today. So one of the ways that you see Moravian missionaries starting to use the word freedom is they constantly refer to spiritual freedom. And this is one of the ways that they justify the continuing practice of slavery and enslavement and also try to separate earthly slavery from spiritual freedom. And so one of the things that they do in the missionary congregations is they talk about spiritual freedom to enslaved people. And they also talk about spiritual freedom to slave owners to try to convince them that converting to Christianity is a spiritual freedom, but it doesn't have any effect on earthly slavery. That is really the way that the idea of freedom is shifting and developing within this period as missionaries try to evangelize to enslaved people and then hit resistance from slave owners who are still fearful of what will happen if a slave becomes Christian. Because as we talked about before, in the early 17th century, when the English people start to create colonies in the Americas, most people assume that if you are a Protestant, you are a free person, by which they mean that you are not a slave, and that you have certain rights that are sort of political. By the early 18th century, the 1730s, 30s, 40s, 50s, missionaries are trying to shift the meaning of freedom and talk about spiritual freedom as being related to Protestant conversion and that not having any effect on earthly slavery. So that is really an important and disappointing shift in the conception of freedom during that period.
0: And Catherine, there's another evolving, changing uh, definitions, I guess you'd say. Originally, Christians were not supposed to own Christians. That is medieval times. That's a point of view that's pretty widespread. But eventually you've got this split in Christianity, Catholic and Protestant and various Protestant denominations, lots of different groups with very different perspectives. But we end up talking about Christian slavery, and there's also Christian supremacy, because Christians are the best because our God's better than your God kind of attitudes, That had to evolve because if slaves at all were considered to be Christians, then, well, wait, I can't have a Christian slave. And so it has to go from being Christians have these rights to whites have these rights. And so we go from Christian supremacy to white supremacy. Talk a little bit about that evolution over that 100, 150 years.
1: Yes, it's one of the most important shifts that I trace in this book. One of my chapters is called From Christian to White, and it is tracing the change in the way that slavery was justified. Because, right, initially, as we've talked about, most slave owners thought that if you are Protestant, then you are a free person. And so they didn't want enslaved people to convert now, as a result of a couple things, both missionary advocacy, so missionaries, Protestant missionaries came in and they wanted to evangelize the slaves, and so they made these arguments to slave owners and others that Christian slaves would be more obedient than others, et cetera, and that Christianity and slavery were perfectly compatible. The second thing that happens that I think is frankly a little bit even more important in this history is that a small number of enslaved people were able to gain access to Protestant baptism, and some of those individuals were able to gain their freedom. So it was a very small population, but there was this emerging group of free Black Christians in the late 17th century in Barbados and elsewhere. And what you see is their very presence undermines the implicit justification for slavery and oppression, which is based on religious difference. And so once you have this emerging population of free black Christians, slave owners need a new way to justify not only slavery, but they need a new way to create a barrier to prevent these free black Christians from gaining more access to political power and rights. And this is where you see the word white, which has not really been present in the law books or in the vernacular very much up to that point. And it becomes a prerequisite for voting. And then eventually it sort of becomes a prerequisite for any kind of political power. And so the history of whiteness, the idea that there are even white people, right, we see that it's actually created during this specific moment in time and for very specific political purposes to find a new justification for slavery and to prevent free Black Christians from accessing the rights that other Christians had in the colonial societies.
0: The definition of white certainly has continued to evolve over the centuries. But I think the definition back then was if 132nd, that portion of your ancestry was black, you're black, that or any more. How did that change in that period?
1: Right. We do see a really dramatic shift in the definition of whiteness during this period. So the, the first law that uses the word white as a prerequisite for voting, that is passed in 1697. And then in 1709, the lawmakers come back and they amend this law and they say a person cannot have any African ancestry in order to be considered to be white. And this is the development of what would later become known as sort of like the one drop rule, right? So the idea that if you have one drop of African blood, then you're black. But we see that this didn't just sort of happen. This was a really intentional progression where there were probably people who were mixed race free Christians, who then maybe this first law was passed that said you have to be white, but one of their parents is white. So they they advocate for their own rights to vote or participate in other political processes. And so in response to that, slave-owning lawmakers then further narrow this definition of whiteness to specifically exclude people of mixed-race ancestry from the privileges of whiteness. And so this is sort of one of the very first examples of this. And the boundaries of whiteness have shifted greatly. It's a malleable category. And so people in power have used it to exclude one group or another at various times in American history. But you see the beginning of that process happening here in the late 17th century and the early 18th century. And that it's really important to recognize that the roots of the word white are in this history of trying to exclude people of color from political citizenship.
0: And folks, you can find a lot more information if you actually just sit down and read Catherine Gerbner's new book, Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. As you were just saying, Catherine... These rights related to race evolved over this period. It was not just whether you were a slave or not. It was whether your testimony could be presented in court. If you got some African blood in you, then your testimony not accepted. Was there also then the lack of a right to actually own property, to own land?
1: That is not the case. There were free black Christians who could own land. And actually, in some cases, free black Christians who owned other slaves
0: which kind of boggles the mind. But of course, in an age when slavery is accepted as a financial institution, maybe it doesn't seem so strange. It's hard to adopt that worldview today.
1: Yeah, it is. It's shocking, but it's true. I found a few different free black Christians in my research who eventually one of the ways where you've climbed the social ladder is to own slaves of your own.
0: It might be especially hard for Quakers to have this attitude about baptism. There were different lines that were drawn to say you were actually a Christian and. One of the questions is, does it involve education? Is it baptism alone that does it? And the Moravians, I understand, in a number of cases, did not accept other people's baptisms as sufficiently Christian or something. So they kept changing the bar for what it would involve for the heathen to become Christian. Talk about that evolution.
1: Yes, I think it's so important to recognize that Conversion itself has a history and what people thought it meant to convert to Christianity has changed over time. And I think one of the most important shifts that I trace in this book is the relationship between literacy and education and conversion. Martin Luther's idea of sola scriptura, right? like you just need the Bible in order to become a Christian. You need to be able to read the Bible. This is sort of one of the fundamental aspects of what it meant to be a Protestant and what it meant to convert to Protestantism for a couple hundred years. And what you see in the Moravian missions is initially when they first start to evangelize to enslaved people, They teach people how to read and write, how to read the Bible. And this is an extremely attractive aspect of conversion for enslaved and free Blacks, many of whom are desperate to gain access to education and to learn how to read and write, both for religious reasons, but I think also more broadly, it was a really powerful tool. And enslaved and free Blacks used those tools of literacy that they learned in the Moravian Missions to advocate on behalf of themselves and their congregation. And, you know, there are some amazing letters written by enslaved and free Black Moravians. There's one written by a free African woman named Maratha, who writes a letter to the Queen of Denmark saying that she's being beaten for practicing Christianity, and she asks the Queen to intercede on her behalf. So you can see how powerful this act of learning how to read and write was in the context of slavery. But what happens is that slave owners also recognize how powerful it is to learn how to read and write. And they argue with the missionaries and say, you can't teach people how to read and write. And over time, the Moravian missionaries and other Protestant missionaries change their meaning of what it really means to convert to Christianity. And they say, well, actually, you don't need to learn how to read and write. All you need to do is focus on the image of Jesus on the cross. And that is really the heart of Protestant theology, and that's all you need to know to be a true convert. And you don't need to learn all of this education. And so over the decades that they are within this slave society, They changed the meaning of conversion to exclude education and literacy from the process of conversion. And I see that also as kowtowing to slave owner fears. And it's another example of how once you are entangled within an economic institution like slavery, we saw the Anglican Church get entangled in slavery as an institution. And what happened there? This is another example where the Moravians really end up taking out literacy from their definition of conversion, really as a result of pressure from slave owners. And
0: there's so much to learn. I'm wondering in the end, Catherine, where having done all this research, does that change, reinforce, undercut attitudes that you have today related to race and supremacy and inequality?
1: I think that it does help us to understand some of the continuing legacies of slavery and racism today. One of the things that I hope that people will come out of this book with is recognition that there's a lot of talk about whiteness and frankly with the increasing presence of white supremacy in our society today as opposed to, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we can see that The persistence of race and racism today is really a direct inheritance from the history that I'm tracing in this book. So I hope that people will come out understanding that race isn't just about biology, and it's more than just a social construct. It was really political creation that was intentionally created at a specific moment in time for the reason of excluding people of color from various privileges. And so I think that recognizing how important history is and how that sort of the racial system we have inherited, how that was created, can help to allow us to analyze what is happening today and to talk about this history and integrate the history into our discussions of combating racism and combating white supremacy, frankly, reemerges in our current times.
0: Do you have any observations about the motivations for it? I think that so much of the support for slavery is because people's economic motives were tied up with this. I'm going to have a big sugar plantation. I can only do it by having uh, extremely cheap – labor source. And so their attitudes went in a direction that served their economic interests. And then the incoming missionaries had to deal with the same kind of motivation. Well, if I'm going to get along with the people who own the plantations, maybe I have to bend my attitudes a bit. How is that working today? And why is white supremacy coming up today? So primary, when you know, we thought we were going to actually reach a post-racist world,
1: You're absolutely right. It's important to examine one's own economic ties and the effects that those economic ties have on our political positions. But more generally, we saw people in power start to lose some of their privileges. We like to think of history as progress. But the fact is that any shift towards a more equal society, we can see backlash happening from people who had benefited from the unequal structures of society previously. And so I think that is what we see today. I think follow the money is always still a good thing to do. (laughs) Think about (laughs) what products are we using What institutions do we intentionally or unintentionally fund with our activities on a daily basis? There were so many people living in 18th, 19th century England who didn't think that they were supporting slavery, but they were. And I think that the divestment approach that you mentioned earlier, it's a really hard one on a personal day-to-day level, but I think it is one that continues to be really powerful and continuing to recognize that Today, probably, like, we're unintentionally supporting practices that are extremely unjust and perpetuating a society that we don't want to perpetuate. So the ways in which we can be more clear-headed and face the complex economic system that we live with today, where we often don't even know where money is actually being trickled down to. I think that this is something that we can learn from the past where really, you know, like missionaries went to the colonies with great intentions and they thought that they were doing something that was greatly beneficial, reforming slavery. But the way that they got entangled in the system helps to educate us about how hard it is to actually maintain a clear conscience when you are participating in what is frankly an unjust social practice.
0: Yeah, I really hope we can find, through reading books like Christian Slavery, we can recognize what the motivations are that drive our lives today. There's a book that you have coming up, or a project coming up, Deconstructing Religion, Defining Crime. Give us a little taste test of what that's going to be about.
1: Right, so it's about our concept of religious freedom. And, you know, we talked a little bit about what we even mean by freedoms today and in the past, And this project is about if we believe in religious freedom, then what do we mean by religion? And I'm looking at religious practices in the past that colonial governments, the United States government have deemed to be not religions and instead are criminal. And many black religious practices, particularly under slavery, were criminalized in the 18th century and later. And so this has a really big impact on concepts of religious freedom. So I'm looking at The connection between ideas about religion, what is considered to be a religion, and also how we could actually have a concept of religious freedom that included more religions and didn't criminalize religions that were practiced under slavery, some of which remain criminalized today.
0: So you've got something else to look forward to, folks. Right now, you can go out and get the book, Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World, you can certainly find your way to getting the book and finding out about other publications by Katherine Gerbner by going to her website, KatherineGerbner.com. Catherine is spelled with two A's. If you have a question, come via org. Everyone can spell that one right. Catherine, thank you so much for doing the work, for helping us untangle the webs, and looking at where our roots, the fruit that we're producing today because of our history. Thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: And folks, I also want to thank Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's show. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. I shall feel the echo